Hello and welcome to this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm Kara Sullison. And I'm Sharon Shu. And dear listeners, as we're sure many of you have noticed, um, <laughs> we have taken a brief, well, I guess not so brief, hiatus from the podcast and it was unannounced. And we do apologize for that. Um, <laughs> it was unplanned. It was extremely unplanned, but that is the title of my 2020 memoir. <laughs> um, <laughs> 2020, it was extremely unplanned. Yeah, so thank you all for your patience with us. Thank you to everyone who reached out. Uh, we want to reassure you that we are both well and you know physically well. It was just um, it was just a really hard summer. <laughs> I think yeah. nationally, politically, we're, we're both in the state. So there's been a lot going on. You know, a lot was being asked of both of us in our workplaces. So yeah, we just, neither of us really had a lot of extra mental and emotional bandwidth. And so in good professional <laughs> fashion, we just <laughs> kind of stopped. Uh, but we are very determined to to keep going and to, you know, finish all the books. Don't worry, this won't be a mid-season cancellation. <laughs> we did get together a few weeks ago and, you know, kind of try to soldier on with Have His Carcass. And we had a really difficult time talking about the book. And we mm -hmm. actually recorded an episode that will just go into our personal archives, because <laughs> it was completely about how, how much trouble we were having yeah. like reading in general, and then reading critically in particular, and reading these books critically in particular, particular. And I think you and I, we kind of came down on the realization that the Peter mysteries, and I think especially the ones with Harriet, are such, they're such comfort reads for us both. Mm -hmm. And not that you can't, you know, approach comfort reading with a critical eye, because that's, I mean, what else have we been doing this whole time? That, that's the whole point of this podcast is to look at something that we love with a critical eye. And it's hard to do that when you just want to cozy in. Exactly. And it has been a few months of, I think, working really hard at work and you and I, you know, individually doing our, our political actions and rallying our communities. Um, but yeah, that that means by the time I sit down with the book, I'm like, I, I just need some comforting. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot do any more thinking right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, that's about the, the sum of it, which is even reading Sayers ordinarily is still an intellectual exercise, right? Because they're books that ask you to meet them on an intellectual level. And that's one of the things we love about them. Yeah. And then when you are trying to bring a critical thinking to the table and really dig into what the books have to offer. And it's, I think you and I both agree, especially in the course of doing this podcast, like we find it incredibly rewarding but it also just takes energy yeah and who has that who has extra energy these days where does that come from uh, also the title of my 2020 memoir <laughs> <laughs> yeah I've just I've been reading a lot of like cozy convalescent fiction in my off time yes. lots of romance novels yes. Lots. I've also been reading lots of yes. romance novels. Guaranteed happily ever afters are what I'm after right now. <laughs> yes. But in an attempt to get back on track and not have our impromptu hiatus drag on too long, we thought we mm -hmm. could do something a little bit different today, which is that we felt that we could bring a critical eye to um, a couple short stories of Sayers's. So... Today we will be talking about the Piscatorial Farce of the Stolen Stomach, which is a Lord <laughs> Peter story that was published in 1928 as part of the Lord Peter Views the Body collection. Obviously, we will be returning to have his carcass at a later date, but by way of easing ourselves back into the saddle. Yes. That, yes, sorry, that was probably a, a thing to say. Don't worry, this we have not suddenly pivoted <laughs> the podcast completely to talking about short stories. Maybe they will be something that we pepper in just as a palate cleanser, maybe. Yeah, we'll see. Again, who's making plans these days? <laughs> the future has no meaning. <laughs> uh, with all that said, um, Karis, do you want to give our listeners a brief sketch of, you know, sort of the, I guess, the inciting incident of this short story? Yeah. So I think uh, what drew us to doing this particular short story, we knew we were just like, let's do a couple of short stories. Um, we both agreed that we didn't 
necessarily want to tackle the short stories just in chronological order or anything like that, that we decided to, to pick something that sounded fun to talk about. And I think when I suggested this one, it came to mind because it takes us back to Scotland, where we have just been. Mm -hmm. It takes us back to Kirkubri in particular. Um, but yeah, we were so ready to leave Scotland by the time we were done with my friend Herring's. <laughs> But this is a, a much shorter story uh, without a single train in it. And it is set in Kukubri, and Lord Peter is there visiting a friend, Thomas McPherson. And he happens to be there when McPherson receives an unusual bequest from a great uncle, uh, which is a medical specimen of the great uncle's stomach. I mean, not just the stomach, but the entire elementary canal and intestinal tract and the, the whole kit and caboodle. And as you can probably guess from the story's title, <laughs> the stomach is going to be stolen. This isn't one that you read to be surprised by the mystery. You know, yeah. there's there's not a lot of sleight of hand. The course of events is not shocking or surprising mm -hmm. it feels more like an adventure story in some ways yeah it is there's a lot more action but this interesting old gentleman great uncle joseph he lived to be 95 and he was never ill except that he had a stroke and you know shortly afterwards jumped out of a six-story window leaving a note behind saying that you know he'd never been ill he wasn't going to start being ill now and leaving a will that bequeathed his elementary organs to his great nephew who's studying to be a doctor yes who's studying to be a doctor that is a an important detail <laughs> i probably should have included but you know so by the happenstance of lord peter being present when this bequest arrives naturally it attracts his curiosity and he just i think it's so i think what i enjoy a lot about like these opening scenes is how naturally nosy peter is and how immediately he goes into detective mode <laughs> yeah he really never turns that off i feel like yeah and he just starts immediately peppering his friend with questions like where did your uncle live what did he do in business did he leave any money who was who was, else was named in the will but he you know like he he does it all conversationally mm -hmm. but he's just full of interest i mean to be fair if i was having breakfast with a friend and an entire <laughs> digestive system showed up in a class I'd, I'd probably have a few questions too maybe maybe not you the same questions. questions Peter has but <laughs> yeah it's it's natural to have a few questions but what I think is interesting is that Peter immediately seems to have very specific suspicions yes about why the stomach is significant and he doesn't mention them to his friend but he does start taking steps to follow up on on what he thinks might be the reason for such an an interesting <laughs> inheritance yeah i mean a lot of the action in this story could have been avoided if he just said like okay old boy just lock that stomach up while i go <laughs> yeah go have a peek at uh the you know the wills and testaments archive <laughs> but maybe he didn't want to get mcpherson's hopes up <laughs> You think if he just suggested, you know, like, he, why don't you dissect it now? Since he says in the note that he wanted you to learn from it <laughs> or something to that effect. Yeah. But then there'd be no story. So. Then there would be no story. Yeah. So Whimsy goes to town and just starts for his, for his own benefit, I suppose, following up on his suspicions. But like, first they, like, first they have this long interlude about the fishing. <laughs> You can escape the trains, but not the fish. <laughs> but not the fish. <laughs> um, I I have to believe that Sayers was writing Five Red Herrings at this point, right? Like 1928. So it's published, the, the story collection's published after A Natural Death in the same year as The Bologna Club, a year before Strong Poison. And I guess that makes it two years before Five Red Herrings. But I feel like... I mean, at the very least, we know she was she was very familiar with this part of Scotland, right? I mean, I think it it's very possible that she had the idea of by red herrings percolating, even if she hadn't already started work on it. Mm -hmm. Well, and did you notice that our our good friend Strachan was mentioned at the end of the the story? Yeah, 
So I feel like there's, and, and there's a character named Jock who I don't think is actually the Jock Graham of Five Red Herrings because mm. he talks in a very thick Scottish accent. Yeah. But just a lot of, a lot of echoes there. I feel like even, I don't know, the, the, the McPherson cousin, Robert, that is mm-hmm. part of the story. I circled and was like, oh, you know, sort of echoes of Robert Fentiman, right? From mm-hmm. Bologna Club, which is also kind of about a contested inheritance. So, yeah. I don't know. yeah. It is a fact that I like, I've noticed there, there's more than one example of Sayers recycling a name of a background character. Mm-hmm. And how much of that is intentional and how much of that is just like, this is a common name. Right. It's actually kind of absurd when you have a book with tons and tons of characters or a series with tons and tons of characters and none of the mm-hmm. names repeat, right? How many Ashleys did I go to, you know, <laughs> K through 12 with? <laughs> so many. Yeah. So it's not easy to drag out the mystery, really, but <laughs> discussing a short story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Readers, listeners, we're about to spoil it (laughs) (laughs) yeah but we're going to give away the mystery Mm -hmm. because like peter goes to somerset house he looks up the great uncle's will uh while putting on a really silly ass performance for the the clerk yes and let's come back and talk about that (laughs) (laughs) um but and he discovers the 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 clause where the great uncle describes in like very very specific details about how his organs are to be removed and he mentions specifically that the elementary organs be removed entire with their contents and specifying that they be properly secured at both ends with a suitable ligature mm-hmm. and peter comes to the very sensible conclusion that the mention of their contents which is mentioned twice is uh, not accidental yeah not insignificant no and earlier when he'd been asking mcpherson kind of about the family and great uncle joseph you know he pries a little bit about like oh did he leave anything behind you know what kind of inheritance like what a what a strange bequest and mcpherson mentions the family had kind of thought that great uncle joseph had had money but Mm -hmm. they were all a little bit surprised when they found out that he only had 500 pounds in the bank and that uh, McPherson's cousin Robert, who was named the you know the trustee, I suppose of of the residuary the, legatee, the residuary legatee of of the odds and ends, was like very deeply disappointed that that was all that it amounted to. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also one of the things that that sends Peter into detective mode. He's like, hmm, where did all that money go? <laughs> well, it's kind of like, uh, isn't that what he says in? strong poison when he's having the conversation with miss clemson about like why do people commit murder Mm -hmm. he's like money but there doesn't seem to be any money and so then he goes looking for money yeah so even though a murder hasn't occurred here Mm -hmm. he's saying you know all that money like if if great uncle joseph did take his money out of the banks kind of right before a few crashes what did he do with it and and peter Mm -hmm. has a hunch as we'll find out very soon in the short story because he's like okay if people don't trust banks they do one of a couple things with with their liquid assets. They invest in property, but property means rents and and management, or they they buy valuables. In this case, in this case, diamonds, diamonds, a detective's best friend. Mm-hmm. But that does lead us to a little bit of an uh, an un. Uh, I have what I have, what is the phrase I'm trying to think of? Racist. Yeah, I was just like an unfortunately familiar <laughs> stereotype. Uh, yeah, that we have encountered before. Yes, there is a very long, as scenes go in short stories, a long scene where Peter goes to a jeweler because, as he says, you know, if someone wants to put their money in something that they think is safer than a bank, jewels might be a thing that occurs to them. So he he goes to a friend of his who is described thus. This gentleman, rather curly in the nose and fleshy about the eyelids, nevertheless came under Mr. Chesterton's definition of a nice Jew, for his name was neither Montague nor MacDonald, but Nathan Abrahams, and he greeted Lord Peter with a hospitality amounting to enthusiasm. Hmm. So let's unpack that. (laughs) And 
I like I feel like I should confess that up until like the last few years, I probably wouldn't have raised any eyebrows at that. Mm-hmm. And especially like the scene that follows, like the conversation that they have, it's like it's real cozy and pleasant and it's so delightful. Yeah, and it just it seems like a really positive scene and the fact that it includes this racial physical stereotype and then this reference to someone being a nice Jew like I just probably would have skipped right over that and been like oh yeah okay whatever mm-hmm. but uh that's actually uh not good at all yeah I think you know like I was kind of reading the story and you and I talked a lot especially when we were talking about whose body about Sayers and the fact that Sayers didn't consider herself to be anti-semitic mm-hmm. in particular you know and we like we heard from several listeners who don't consider her anti-semitic and we both came down on the side of whether it was intentional or not those feelings are obviously present in her work Mm -hmm. and like I was kind of making a connection between this physical description I mean it's not on its face like derogatory or insulting to you know say he has this shape of nose and this shape you know like this characteristic of of his eye shape and it's the problem of being like he looks like this, therefore he's this. Mm-hmm. And that kind of flippantly being like, he belongs in this group. Right. And, you know, like my brain making that connection between that and some of the things that some of the like wonderful quotable things that Sayers says in her essay are women human. You know, mm-hmm. that what everyone hates most is to be reckoned as part of a group and not as an individual. Yeah, it's... It feels like that classic white feminism thing, right? Mm -hmm. Where, I mean, you had suffragists who were fighting for the rights of women to vote in the late 19th, early 20th century, who were using that language of rights and individuality, but they Mm -hmm. couldn't, not they couldn't, they refused to extend that to other racial groups, and certainly to racialized women. So I think it's, it is this conundrum for those of us who love Sayers's work and study her and maybe found a lot to connect to in her writings about female independence and female rights and the rights of women to be recognized as human beings. Um, But the fact that she has all of this sort of unexamined, all of these unexamined assumptions Mm -hmm. around race that makes it you know, really easy for her to group certain people within a race together and have them stand for the entire group. And yeah, the fact that the the Jews who show up in her novels are like always bankers or working <laughs> bankers or financiers or mm-hmm. money lenders or jewelers. Yeah, it's it's really uncomfortable. Like you know, a one off, a two off. It's like okay, she maybe she just <laughs> like. And it's not like she didn't know any Jews, but like for this to show up over and over and over. And I think especially the use of this Chesterton quote here is is really uncomfortable. Yeah. Which you tracked down the source of the quote. Would you tell us a little bit about it? I did. I will. (laughs) And I say this as someone who, you know, like G.K. Chesterton's writings have meant a lot to me. You know, I have not really gone down the rabbit hole of like his beliefs and his essays in this regard, but it it is not great. So the quote appears to have come from The Ball and Cross. And the quote was, the nice Jew is called Moses Solomon and the nasty Jew is called Thornton Percy. And really what it's reflecting is Chesterton had this attitude where he believed that Jews were unassimilable. So they were others, they should not try to pass themselves off as part of the nations that they were, you know, a diaspora population of because of Mm -hmm. persecution. (laughs) Um, But that's, you know, we can set that aside. So in his opinion, you know, a Jewish person who tried to pass themselves off, quote unquote, as say, British, a Thornton Percy, or a McDonald or a Montague was like underhanded and conniving. And he thought it was far more honest for them to, you know, keep Jewish names and to not try to assimilate. And part of this was because he, he held the belief, which was not uncommon during that time and is not uncommon now, which is why we have to talk about these things that 
you know, a that there was like a global conspiracy where Jewish people ran the banks and the media and controlled parts of the government and so mm-hmm. forth. And again, this is a conspiracy theory that still exists now mm-hmm. and that is highly anti-Semitic and that uh, people use to justify anti-Semitic actions, right? Mm-hmm. And beliefs. So so all of this, like, you know, I think you and I, we did, we did hear from some people early on when we were talking about whose body, where it was like, well, Sayers is just reflecting the attitudes of her time and... Not necessarily like, can you all give her a pass on that? But, you know, we shouldn't come down too harshly on that. And I'm like, Mm. no, because the attitudes of that time that get reflected in the literature, if you don't consume the literature critically, you're just going to replicate those attitudes now, right? Mm -hmm. Which people do. So, yeah. And and it's, I think I take a special, offense isn't the right word, but the this whole question of like, should a minority population assimilate? Can they assimilate? Like, if you're not looking at the power dynamics of, okay, first, people are, you know, scattered from their homes because of colonialism and imperialism and persecution, and then they land in these other places, and immediately the pressure is exerted, right, to, mm-hmm. to like, be patriotic and to embrace your new nation, to then say, like, oh, that is an underhanded activity to try to do like put in the situation of you can't win yeah you know because you're you're going to be persecuted for not assimilating but you're being disingenuous if you assimilate and it's like it really comes down to you're wrong to be here whatever you do you're wrong yeah exactly you know as an asian american woman like asian americans are considered the perpetual foreigner in america Mm -hmm. right it it like it doesn't matter how long your family's been here it doesn't matter if your family came here and helped build the railroads, like, because you are phenotypically marked as different, Mm. that question of like, but where are you really from always comes up. And I feel like, you know, it's not a one to one comparison. But I just, yeah, it just really gets my goat that Chesterton said those things and thought those things. And that apparently this was like a well known enough, you know, either quote of his or idea or idea that people in general held that Sayers can just kind of offhandedly toss it into a short story. That's just all, that's all really uncomfortable. Yeah. Did I lose you? No, I just. Yeah, okay. Got quiet. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't know what to say. Also, kind of hit that point. So I'm just like, I don't know if we're just like both having a pause mm-hmm. of, and where do we go from there? We sit with the discomfort. Yeah. I mean, you know, I. I think one way of being an ally is saying this is here and it is bad, Mm. right? And not glossing over, like, not doing the thing that we're all prone to in especially literature we love where we're like, oh, well, she didn't mean it. Or if she did mean it, it's not that bad. Or, I mean, and I, like... I went through a journey too. Like, you know, I mean, I was a modernist for heaven's sake, right? Like (laughs) I had to, in some ways I'm like, I, yeah, I had to write like all T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pat, my God, like (laughs) just a wash in racial stereotype. Um, Mm. And like, once again, it's not, it's like you can, you can read and appreciate and like actually be deeply formed by writing written by people who held these attitudes and who you know were very very flawed um Mm. and dare i say like racist by the standards of both our time and theirs Um, yeah and and like i i don't think i think the problem would be like never being willing to revisit you know that work with a critical eye right the problem would be mm-hmm. saying like no 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 i am going to bury my head in the sand and like not think about it because i love this book or this character so much yeah um and i'm going to refuse to like recognize the reality of the other things that this author said i mean it doesn't mean you know like i'm never going to read sayers again and and people yeah. can actually make that decision too right like if right. if readers who are encountering all of this in her work go like, you know what, I'm actually out like that's, that's for them (laughs) to decide. That's not for anybody. That's not for me to decide of like what someone can take or not. But I think I just think it's important. And I think like, literary theory gives us a lot of equipment to be able to pull back and go like, Oh, wow, that makes me really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Or like, Oh, hey, that 
that phrasing or that attitude or that stereotype is still recognizable to us now. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this kind of writing where it's not out and out, like, you know, Sayers isn't doing like a phrenology or a eugenics here, but like where it is tapping into these ideas and sort of like pulling them into mass culture and into, Mm -hmm. into media that, you know, a large number of people are consuming it just it merits another look you know it merits a a critical eye of saying like hey if we don't want to just unthinkingly replicate the problem then you know then then we just we got to put on our big girl pants and deal with it (laughs) (laughs) yeah well it's you know like the i feel like part of the problem is that sayer this is an area where sayers never stop and self-examined you know and like if I feel like there's a certain amount of responsibility in a reader that, you know, if like if a writer has failed to self-examine their own work, do it for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you're you're like you're taking that work into yourself, you know, like the written word, the way we absorb it is like unique and s- specific. And, you know, you you like words are something that you absorb. Exactly. <laughs> like. Not to get all weird about <laughs> books, but you know, like they, they they enter your mind and they enter your heart in a in a way that's very kind of unique from other forms of media. Mm-hmm. And like, why wouldn't you want to like think a little bit about what <laughs> what yeah. it is that you're taking in? Yeah, I guess where I come down, if if like you as a reader, if a text is harming you. Mm-hmm then certainly like you don't need to engage with it. Yeah. Right. Like I, yeah, there's no obligation to be hurt. (laughs) Yeah. And there's no obligation. And I, and I also want to say like, because I think you and I have touted the merits of there is something responsible and, and, you know, maybe I dare say even pleasurable about approaching a text that you love, but that has problematic elements and bringing a kind of theoretical or critical gaze to it. Um, and that's something that you you and I want to do and that we enjoy doing. But I think, you know, to some extent that like that is also a privileged position, right? That mm-hmm. is a, a privileged position that we have as um, like people who've been given that equipment yeah. due to our education, due to being English majors, due to often not being the oppressed or marginalized populations that would be most harmed. Mm-hmm. And so you know, and, and this whole like, oh, be less emotional. Like what I'm not saying is readers should be less emotional and not have reactions or like yeah. that you owe it to an author or a text to examine because that, that feels dangerously close to like the whole, you know, to, to now really broadly <laughs> sweep the like, you know, when men are like, if, if women were just less emotional, like if you could just, <laughs> if you could just present your arguments more logically, we would listen to you. And I'm like, no, you yeah. wouldn't. Like, yeah, no, absolutely not. Yeah. Which like, I should like every reaction I have to media is on some level emotional, which is exactly why I didn't pursue academia beyond getting a <laughs> bachelor's degree. I was just like, I have looked at academia and I think it's not for me. It's a lot of people arguing all the time and pretending they don't have emotions. Yeah, I can't handle it. I'm yeah. emotional. I have a lot of feelings. You know, and when I say that people should read things critically, I'm not saying like every time you sit down to read something, it should be with your critical thinking hat on. No, certainly not. Because yeah. we definitely don't do that. Most of the time when I read Have His Carcass, I am not doing that. <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah like I mean like we have we have been stuck kind of on this uh for a little bit and we lost sight of the actual story I guess we yeah um no but I think it's a good it, I think it's good to unpack like what is it that we are trying to do here and what is it that we are we are or we are not saying you know other people can or should do right as mm-hmm. readers so yeah 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 and it's also I mean like you said they go on to have a really delightful conversation yeah where Mr. Abrahams is like kind of joshing Peter about, oh, are you finally here to pick out a ring for Mrs. Peter? (laughs) And, you know, Peter says, no, I haven't found the lady yet. And Mr. Abraham says, you know, once you do, everything will be done in a hurry. Quick, Mr. Abrahams, I have fallen in love yesterday and I'm being married tomorrow. But it may take months, years to find and match perfect stones. And it's wonderful because like that is kind of how impetuously Peter is going to fall in love with Harriet. Yeah. (laughs) 
It really is. And when we were talking about Strong Poison, we kind of talked about like how how immediately Peter falls in love with Harriet. Like he sees her in the dock and and like that's it for him. Mm-hmm. And it does give me this like lovely mental image of him showing up to visit Mr. Abraham and being like, You were right, it happened. <laughs> quick (laughs) but also it's more complicated than that yeah and i do appreciate the reference to like specifically there's a reference to rubies like mr abrams Mm -hmm. abrahams shows him some rubies and just like would they even make a good engagement ring (laughs) something very pretty (laughs) yeah that is something that uh, we will revisit later <laughs> much later as it much as later it, it will take a while unfortunately for peter harriet does not agree to marry him three days after meeting him during which she's still standing trial for murder so you know yeah. all, all around a, a bit of a delay yes but yes. do you want to talk about the auction i do want to talk about the auction okay because i find it deeply delightful it is so wonderful Oh, I guess we should say in summary that, you know, Peter visits uh, Mr. Abrahams and learns that great uncle Joseph was uh, in the business of acquiring diamonds. Yes. At, over the course of many years, he and and purchased in cash. So mm-hmm. 20 years ago, there was like a the a bank, couple of banks crashed and there was like a, a scare and great uncle Joseph went and like took out all his money. And then no one knew what had happened to it. Yeah, I mean, I think we alluded to it, but that yeah, is a good yeah. actual yeah, factual quick, summary. Quick, yeah, quick reminder um, mm-hmm. that he, he had taken pretty much all of his money out of the bank and no one knew where he had stashed it or what he had done with it. And we learn uh, from Mr. Abrahams that what he did with it was acquire diamonds of particular brilliance and that were perfectly matched Mm -hmm. and that uh mr abrahams and several other jewelers were acquiring these gems for him over the course of i think 20 years but you know like over the course of quite a long time and that he always paid in cash and that at the end he had 12 perfectly matched diamonds Mm -hmm. and abraham said you know like on average like the last one i sold him was seven thousand pounds but he also mentions that um the set together because they are they are perfectly matched would be valued far above Mm -hmm. what each individual stone was valued at Mm -hmm. yeah so it's a a very long-term investment yes and it's interesting right because i like you have this long interlude where you're talking about value and valuation Mm -hmm. and how in some sense like the 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 worth of an object is what what people can kind of collectively agree on, right? Like Mm. that the stones themselves, okay, there's some, this kind of exchange price, but that because it would be difficult or rare to have a whole set together, then that, you know, the price goes up because Mm -hmm. again, everybody has sort of artificially agreed that diamonds are precious and that a set of 12 perfectly matched diamonds are even more precious. Um, (laughs) And there is a rarity. And then Peter goes and bids on some ancient manuscripts. Um, yes. Which and he has a, such a good time. He has such a good time. And he also like artificially <laughs> drives, drives the value up and down. Like, he, you know, it says that he he has this sort of like nemesis scrimes who's always like <laughs> bidding against him. And they, you know, it, it, it kind of goes through all of Peter's tactics where he... Mm-hmm. You know, he jumps in at the last minute on this Catullus and Scrimes sort of senses the blood in the water. So he overbids him and then they go back and forth. <laughs> um, and then, you know, Peter finally wins. And then because he had such a good time, he like to, to poke at Scrimes, he, he then just like starts entering for uh, this random other thing where then all these other antiques dealers are like, oh, if Lord Peter is, you know, maybe maybe this thing is more valuable than we thought it was. Um, but Peter's just playing. And yeah, I don't just, know. There's yeah, it says that he drives the price up and then he leaves him holding the baby. Exactly. Yes. Um, and and there's this like very delightful interlude where a timid little outsider suddenly flinging himself into the arena became the owner of a fine 14th century missile at bargain price. Crimson with excitement and surprise, he paid for his purchase and ran out of the room like a rabbit, <laughs> hugging the missile as though he expected to have it snatched from him. Oh. Um, it's just, it's, it, 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 
Sayers does that thing that she does so well here, right? Where she she sketches out like there's so much backstory there's so much almost like world building you can totally picture the scene Mm -hmm. and in my copy it's like a page right yeah she does so much so efficiently um and I feel like it's only fair to to heap laurels on her for that after we've you know I have just spent however many minutes (laughs) um talking about the things that I don't appreciate about her writing um there's nuance in everything. There's nuance in everything, yes. And I think I think that question of like what is valuable, what is valuable because it is rare and unreproducible versus what is valuable because people have, you know, sort of like everybody has sort of just held hands and agreed that it is. Like <laughs> that's something I'm I feel like I'm still, you know, even after a dissertation chapter in many, many years, like trying to tease out that thread in Sayers. And it's mm. once again, I'll say like when we get to Gaudy Night, I will have so much to say <laughs> about this. Um but even when we get back to Have His Carcass, I will have so much to say about this because I think these ideas like she's just tugging at this thread constantly and, mm. and in Have His Carcass, the the whole thing with the razors. Um, yeah, really, really gets into this, but I will, I will put a pin in that <laughs> so that you and I both have something to look forward to. <laughs> Hooray! Hooray! Something uh, that we all need. Yes. Um, yeah, but so Peter dashes off a telegram to McPherson and says, you know, open up great uncle, basically, post haste. <laughs> uh, and McPherson telegrams back and says, you know, basically, like, what the devil does this mean? Bottle was stolen yesterday. Um, bottle found broken in the river, dropped by burglar. Contents gone. What next? Uh, and this is this is my favorite line in the story. So you know, Peter Peter sends a telegram back that's like, you know, dredge the river. Uh, I'm coming. And then the line says, the night express decanted Lord Peter Wimsey at Dumfries <laughs> early the following morning. And a hired oh, I car lied. De- there is a train. Yes, there is a train. <laughs> um, and a hired car deposited him at the stone cottage in time for breakfast. But I just, the night express decanted Lord Peter Lindsay. <laughs> that, that is as good as the door waltzed open. Yes, I also highlighted that. Yeah. <laughs> you just. I love that idea. It is. It is exactly how I feel after I've been on like a red eye flight, right? Like just, yeah. just pour me out of here. <laughs> mm. It. I picture the uh, the scene in the Miyazaki House Moving Castle where Hal is just like turning into slime and he sort of like slimes his way over to the to the table and like flumps down and is like, I don't have the will to live. Like, <laughs> what's the point of living if I exactly. can't be beautiful? I can't be beautiful. Yeah, I. I feel like Hal has a lot of Lord Peter Whimsy in his DNA. <laughs> I think, and you know, that's true of like both the film version and the book version, which yes. they're two distinct entities for anyone who's unfamiliar with Hal's Moving Castle. The film and the book are very to be different. treated as separate and distinct that's narratives, true. but both very worthwhile. But yeah, both have definite echoes of Lord Peter for me. <laughs> um Yes, yeah, so Whimsy arrives back in Scotland um, after taking the train, the one the one solitary train, and we don't even talk about its schedule. <laughs> just, just he God. arrives. He arrives in the middle of chaos, which I suppose we should mention that his, uh, because the fishing was good, his telegram was not received by McPherson right away. Yes. Uh, which is why I, I, I should go back to this other line that I like where um like he sends off the telegram and after the it's after the book sale like he sent the telegram to mcpherson telling him to open uh open up the stomach and after the book sale he's he it says he felt vaguely hurt at receiving no ecstatic telegram from mcpherson he refused (laughs) to imagine that his deductions had been wrong and supposed rather that the rapture of mcpherson was too great to be confined to telegraphic expression and would come next day by post and so I just, I just love the idea of him like feeling a little sulky. Yeah. He hasn't, you know, like gotten confirmation of his, of you know, like his what he suspected, but also that he he he's sure that he's not wrong. Right, but he's been like insufficiently thanked. Yeah. <laughs> just, which I mean, I I I feel that feeling. 
<laughs> I just the other day, I specifically told people that I was sulky because I sh- I felt like I should have gotten a bigger laugh at something. I mean, you are legit one of the funniest people I know. So I support you in in your quest to have your family sufficiently recognize that. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that deeply. You're welcome. <laughs> but yes, it turns out that McPherson was away fishing, didn't get the first telegram until after the bottle had already been stolen by a, a burglar who comes in in the night. Mm-hmm but who doesn't get away with the bottle. It's such a kind of a slapstick, you know, scene to imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I love that Maggie, the housekeeper, when she's describing that whole slapstick scene in her very, very thick Scottish accent, at the very end, she's like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to try to reproduce the accent, but but she, you know, she notes the detail that the burglar trampled down the young kale in the strawberry mm-hmm. beds, the blackguard. <laughs> and I circled that. And, you know, as someone who is a, also like an amateur home gardener, um, and I've been fighting with some critters that keep eating my little cherry tomato sprouts no. before they can blossom and like... <gasps> Yeah, so I I have this enormous cherry tomato plant, Karis, and I have eaten three cherry tomatoes <laughs> total this summer because I don't know if it's a raccoon or a squirrel or something that comes at, like a thief in the night. <laughs> so I I really feel for Maggie, the housekeeper here. <laughs> she does say that if the cattle had gotten in, they couldn't have done more devastation. Right? It is, it is truly a crime. Not a gentleman burglar at all. No. <laughs> um which uh you mentioned the robert the cousin of mcpherson who was the residuary legatee of the will mm-hmm. um and we failed to mention that peter actually meets him at somerset house because yes. he was there to have a have a squint at the same will at great uncle joseph's will yes and I love how the clerk is like, I've never had this happen to me before. <laughs> Two people wanting to see the same will at the same time. This poor innocent clerk. He's just like, what a crazy random happenstance. <laughs> and I think, you know, like that's what leads to Peter going ahead and sending the telegram as opposed to just like going back to visit his friend and being like, I think you should open up the stomach, you mm-hmm. know, because he note he like he kind of sees that cousin Robert recognizes his name and he's like oh he's been given food for thought there's shenanigans afoot with the stomach (laughs) (laughs) so lord peter arrives in scotland to find the stomach missing the bottle it was in broken so it's it's no longer in its container and cousin robert with a broken kneecap (laughs) being like stuck in bed nursed in the upstairs room yeah yeah uh because he was out fishing you can't mm. see me doing air quotes but he was out fishing when his cousin bumped into him and he slipped and broke his knee do you want to give us a little summary of how things wrap up yeah um i can do that i i love that first peter sort of trolls cousin robert when <laughs> he's like oh fishing eh do you do you use the pink sisket or uh, <laughs> and uh, give me your opinion of it you know, Mr. Ferguson says, not so bad. Sometimes cut trout with it. You surprise me, said Whimsy. Not unnaturally since he had invented the pink sisket on the spur of the moment. <laughs> so it's just, oh, Peter being Peter. I, yeah. I love how Peter he is in this in this story. <laughs> but yeah, so he goes out and, you know, they're they're dragging the river. Uh, and then he has the idea of like, where do where where does the flotsam and jetsam usually wash up, right? Mm-hmm. So they go and they find uh, the stomach on on this spit of land surrounded by seagulls. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's a long, unseemly object, like a drab purse lay on the shore. You know, so they take it back into the house. McPherson dissects the stomach and they find 11 of the, the 12 diamonds in mm. it. And I love that Maggie. So, so yeah, so it turns out that, you know, Uncle Joseph had swallowed all the diamonds right before he did away with himself. And I love that Maggie, the housekeeper, says he must have been a grand man for a pill with respect. <laughs> um, which, yeah, it's, it's quite a feat. Uh, it really is. Yeah. So those diamonds are now 
Dr. McPherson or soon to be Dr. McPherson's, you know, and they, they think, okay, well, I guess a seagull got the last one. And, and the final line <laughs> is Jock being like, I'm going to go get a gun. <laughs> <laughs> 7,000 pounds and a seagull. Right. Like off I go. Uh, yeah. And, and I guess, you know, this is wrapping back a little bit, but I, it might be worth mentioning that the, that great, great uncle Joseph had said in his will that he was leaving McPherson the stomach one because you know they'd always had sort of this little joke where he's like a, a good digestion is the most precious thing a man can have mm-hmm. uh which as someone who has kind of a, a funny tummy at times I, I i'm like yes it is very true yes. but in his will he says you know basically i wish him to understand that no riches in the world are comparable to the riches of a good digestion and a desire of him that he will in the exercise of his medical profession use his best endeavors to preserve to his patients the blessing of good digestion unimpaired not needlessly filling their stomachs with drugs out of concern for his own pocket, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And I just wanted to briefly touch on that because we have, you and I have talked before, especially in these early books about how many, how many villains Sayers has who are like medical people Mm -hmm. run amok basically, or like medical people who are more concerned for their own wealth or their own mm. reputation, etc. And and then they abuse the like the trust that's placed in them by their patients for their own gain. So so it's really interesting to me that we have this short story that's almost calling that out um, mm. and giving an alternative. And I you know I don't know what it says that the alternative is like oh well if you have lots of money then you can then you can be nice to people. <laughs> but <laughs> I always find it easier to be nice to people when I have lots of money (laughs) but the same is not true for other people who have lots of money it's yeah there's there's probably an upper threshold (laughs) yeah yeah but yeah there we go that that is the piscatorial farce of the stolen stomach (laughs) yeah and it's like it's a bit of a romp isn't it it's just kind Mm -hmm. of a fun it's and like fundamentally such a kind of silly premise yeah yeah but it's nice it's nice to see peter Detecting a crime that's not a murder. Yes. And I like in the books, you know, Peter has that irreverent attitude and, you know, like at the beginning of um, Unnatural Death when he's being like nosy just to be nosy. And in the books, we always see that attitude being tempered by the realization that, you know, like this is serious. This is a murder. Mm -hmm. This is people's lives at stake. And so like in this story, we just kind of like we get that fun side of Peter without the without being brought down. Yeah. You know, we don't we don't have to lose that buzz of how fun it is to be nosy and to make yourself a nuisance. (laughs) Which is a yeah, I'm thinking about various, especially, you know, golden age detective fiction, right? There is this Mm. like that that is that is the DNA that all good detectives really have to share. And it's interesting who gets allowed to do that. Like Miss Marple is allowed to do it. And I guess Miss mm-hmm. Clemson, because everybody knows old ladies are nosy. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it's fine if your maiden aunt is coming and asking these questions. And, you know, for Peter, I mean, part of it is the silly ass act that he puts on mm-hmm. so that people think he's harmless. But, you know, I, I also have to imagine some of it is that because he is, you know, his lordship <laughs> gets to yeah. ask a few more questions than the rest of us. All right. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us for our conversation about this wonderful short story. We did talk longer than we planned to. (laughs) Found a lot to dig into, but we're looking forward to next time talking about Montague Egg, uh, taking a little break from Lord Peter to introduce a different Dorothy L. Sayers detective. And we hope that soon this is going to lead to us being back on track with our usual schedule and getting back into the novels. Yes, fingers crossed. Uh, <laughs> 2020, the year of no plans. <laughs> but no, I, I found this really invigorating, Karis, and I think uh, I, I hope our listeners did as well. And, and thank you for sticking with us, listeners, even when we just kind of ghosted you for a while. And uh, <laughs> We didn't mean to. We, we love you. To. Yeah, we really didn't mean to. Doing this podcast with you, Karis, and, and obviously inviting other people into the conversation has been... Uh, just a deeply wonderful thing in the last year, and especially in the last like six ish, 
however many months into quarantine and in this pandemic we are in. So thank you. Thank you listeners. And yeah, join us again in two weeks. Yeah. Which, and Sharon, we yeah. should probably acknowledge oh. we're recording this on October the 4th. Yes. And by the time this is posted, it will have been our one year anniversary of the podcast. That is wild. But you're right. <laughs> We've been doing this for a year. Oh, Minus both, our unplanned vac- vacation. Yeah, yeah. It both feels like that, that it happened in an instant. And also, I can't believe it was only a year. You know, like, <laughs> what is time? Time is a flat is, circle. Time is no meaning. My 2020 memoir. <laughs> well, happy uh, anniversary, Karen. Happy anniversary, Sharon. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at whimsypod. That's whimsy spelled W-I-M-S-E-Y. Our website, where you can find transcripts for each episode, as well as links to any resources we mentioned on today's podcast, is asmywhimsytakesme.com. Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. If you've enjoyed this episode of As My Whimsy Takes Me, we'd be really grateful if you would give us a rating and leave us a review on iTunes or on your podcaster of choice. We also hope that you'll tell all of your friends who love Dorothy L. Sayers as much as we do. See you next time for more Talking Piffle.